0: Are you managing the structure, the cost model of your practice as it moves from
1: fee-for-service to value? Hello, I'm Dave Gans, MGMA Senior Fellow for Industry Affairs, welcoming you to the Executive Session, a monthly discussion with a healthcare leader on a critical issue of interest to medical practice executives. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Randy Pirtle, FACMPE. Chief Executive Officer, Blue Ridge Medical Center. Blue Ridge Medical Center is a 501c3, not-for-profit, federally qualified health center, and a Level 3 patient-centered medical home. It has clinical offices in rural Arlington, Amherst, and Appomattox, Virginia. Randy recently presented a session at the Medical Practice Excellence Pathways Conference that addressed value-based contracting that drew outstanding reviews and prompted this interview to bring his ideas to a wider audience. Randy, can you please introduce yourself and describe your background and your experience at Blue Ridge Medical Center?
0: Sure. Uh, First, I want to say hello to everyone who's listening, and I'm so pleased you're here, and I'm looking forward to sharing some ideas with you. Just to briefly uh, sum up my past, I'm a graduate of the University of California, Davis, and also from my master's in health administration, graduate of Chapman University. I really enjoyed the process of becoming board certified with ACMPE and also completing my fellowship. I, I found that to be very, very helpful, very useful, and I really urge the listeners to consider working toward those uh, credentials. I, I think you'll find it, it it's time well spent and a great way to, to make progress in, in your career. I um, have worked for several different uh, segments of the healthcare industry in medical practice. I've been in charge of federally qualified health center systems, rural health center systems that were facility-based. I've also worked for large hospital systems like Center Health in California and Advent Health Florida Hospital in Florida. Recently in the last, I think it's four years now, I've been working at a really fine uh, federally qualified health center system and, which has grown quite a bit in my time there in central Virginia and that's Blue Ridge Medical Center. And uh, just, just to add a moment, one thing that uh, I think is, has been special about that experience and pertains to the discussion today is through my career I've been fascinated with value-based care and the transition to value-based care. Which has been sort of coming on the horizon for a long, long time. And one of the things that uh, Blue Ridge Medical Center made possible was for me to take some of the ideas I'd developed over many years, especially in the area of care management, and be able to apply them. And in order to do that, you know, I needed to really have a better understanding of the transition from a fee-for-service environment to a value-based uh, reimbursement environment. So um, these years at Blue Ridge Medical Center have been really helpful to me,
1: Dave. Well, let's begin our discussion with a closer look at how payment methods are changing and how government and commercial insurance payers are introducing financial incentives for improving quality and reducing the total cost of care. Practice leaders are familiar with fee-for-service payment. It is the traditional method where a provider sees a patient, submits a bill to the patient or a payer, and is reimbursed based on a particular level of service. Essentially, the more services performed or the higher level of service results in higher payment, which shows this is a completely volume-driven payment method. While fee-for-service is still the dominant payment method, many payers are offering other payment systems that offer increased degrees of risk, but with commensurate rewards for practices who contract with them. Randy, in your presentation, you had very good description of some of the principal types of value-based contracts. Can you just give us a brief summary?
0: Sure. And, you know, I'm going to describe some, uh, what I think are some principal models of reimbursement. And as you indicated, Dave, we're going to, I'm going to start with fee-for-service and I'll end up with what I would call extreme capitation and, and bundling. And in between, there's a, there are a lot of possible models. And what I want to say to the listeners today is. These are not the only ones. These aren't the exclusive uh, possibilities. The important thing is for you to look in your service area, in the market you are functioning in as a provider, and see what the plans available to your patients, how they pay you. And you'll find that you have your, your group of reimbursement models that you have to contend with. So these are just some examples, but I'm, I'm hoping they'll give you some food for thought. So the, the first one is fee-for-service that uh, that Dave mentioned. And I think a lot of us are, sort of grew up on those and they've continued to change, but uh, fee-for-service is still the dominant way that you get paid for the services you render. But it's it's changing. So let's go to the next possibility up the line, and that's fee-for-service with payment adjustments. An example of that, which I think has been more or less put on hold because of COVID, but it's coming, it's going to come back, and parts of it already are very much coming back, and that 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 has to do with the, the new MIPS rules uh, that Medicare CMS promulgated uh, before COVID, and that was for Part B payments, and the idea was that they were they wanted to move toward future payments adjusted based on performance in four principal areas: your improvement activities in your practice, quality of care, the cost of care, and promoting interoperability. And the idea that they were pursuing is that there's this scoring rubric that uses those four performance measures. And then your future CMS payments would be based on your score. And I guess the good news and the bad news is that this score might affect the payments in a positive direction, could also affect them in a negative direction. So there's some upside and downside risk. I just want to point out that interoperability is becoming a bigger issue. And those of you who are aware of the Cures Act and the fact that it is already law, and that there are regulations being published about interoperability, that's a big issue. So that's evidence of the continued forward motion of this sort of uh, reimbursement model. Let's go to another one, a little up the, the way from that, and that's fee for service with shared savings. This particular reimbursement model is most closely associated with things like accountable care organizations and and clinically integrated networks, ACOs and CINs. And the idea with those is that uh, your practice becomes part of a consortium of facilities and cooperating specialists and ancillary services and so forth to provide care as, as a group. The idea is that you are given a panel or a population of patients and there's actuarial work done and basically though that group of patients there's a calculation of what services the payer in this case cms would expect to be provided to those folks to keep uh, to provide quality care what would be expected based on age gender a location in the country and other factors and then at the end of the year if the, uh, the, the total cost of care with quality is less than what was actuarially uh, predicted, then there could be some money that is shared with the, the uh, consortium, the CIN or ACO. And uh, if, on the other hand, the costs exceed what was actuarially predicted, well, there could be a loss there. Now, some of these models only had an upside, but uh, I think you can expect that as uh, the years go on, uh, certainly in ACOs, uh, in some cases, there was a downside. So um, these are interesting concepts. The next one is fee-for-service with shared savings and risk. And here, very similar to the last one, but definitely here, there is a shared savings opportunity and a shared loss opportunity. And uh, these kinds of plans can take many forms, you know, similar to CIN and ACO structures, but. The, the real issue is there's a serious down risk uh, possibility here, and a bad year can literally drive a practice out of business. Now, the final option is capitation and bundling, and I think we've all heard about some of these in certain pilot locations. I know there, there was uh, some bundling uh, pilots in uh, Florida when I was there, and capitation has been around a long time, but in in its most extreme form, it's very interesting. And I want to paint a picture with this one. Uh, And I kind of use what I think is kind of a a funny, uh, entertaining model. So the idea here is that in the most extreme form, the payer comes to you with a bag of gold and they plunk it down on the barrel head And they say, all right, here's this panel of patients. And uh, here's the gold. Your job, if you accept it, is to uh, take full responsibility financially for the care of this group of patients. And in return, you can pick up that bag of gold. Now, here's how it works. At the end of the year, if the total cost to provide quality care to this group of people is less than the total value of the gold in the bag, well, you get to keep the difference. And, uh, oh, but by the way, if the total cost exceeds the amount of the value of the gold in the bag. You get to pay that. And we're not talking about, well, you know, it's kind of theoretical. No, no, we're talking about covering the cost. This is real cash. The actual risk is pretty massive. Full capitation really represents in uh, what Dave and I have talked about in the past, the, uh, the hot potato game. Whoever has the hot potato has the risk. And in this case, the risk, the hot potato is in the hands of the provider. And that, that is, um, that's a pretty sobering situation. And so capitation and bundling is sort of the most extreme form of what we could call risk and, and it, of all the, the payment models and paradigms, this is the one that, uh, that really makes the management of the situation most critical.
1: Now, of course, Andy, as you described the different payment methods... One of the issues that occurs is that uh, we're, we do not live in a static environment, that the uh, especially in insurance contracting, the our external environment is changing. And oftentimes practices have relatively little leverage in choosing what type of payment me- method their insurance company is going to offer to them. They have the choice to accept it or not. And oftentimes organizations... Uh, are faced with a decision of, of because if there's a principal insurer in their region that insurer is only offering risk-based contracts, they may be moving into risk areas that they may not otherwise want to want to venture in. Now, in your presentation, you described uh, a le- information from a landmark business book, The Second Curve by Ann Morrison, uh, which businesses follow an S-curved growth cycle. Business re- uh, leaders ride only the first curve. Their businesses rise to a very satisfying height, but then declines in a downward trend when the business evolves. So, you know, it's, and it's important that our practice leaders know when to transition to new business models. Of course, as we see both governmental and commercial insurers changing their contracting to include more degrees of risks, medical practice leaders have to understand that their business models are changing. So Randy, can you expand a little bit on this idea of a S curve for business and also uh, can you explain what happens to practices who don't change their business or practice models when they accept a value-based contract?
0: You know, Ian Morrison's concept is, is a, Is a very important one. And I think that's why it became such an important view that business planners had to take into consideration as they planned their, at least from a strategic point of view, their future. The idea is that, you know, a business can start out uh, with a very favorable market. You know, they have the right product at the right time uh, and they're able to produce it at the right cost and price it properly for a, a, a good solid return. And when you're in that situation, it's really easy to to decide that, you know, you found the, the holy grail, so to speak, and you're going to be very bonded to that approach. And in spite of that, as, as you said, Dave, the world's changing, and tastes are changing, needs are changing. You know, a business has to has to, To understand that following that first curve may not work out very well in the long run there may be a new product a new service a new series of products and services that the business really needs to be thinking about as it responds to changes in the market there's going to be a transition right if they do that they're going to have to begin to fall out of love with their original high return process or service And they're going to have to begin to fall in love with a new uh, group of services. And and so there's a point at which the business really needs to jump from the first curve to the second curve. And the place and the time is critical. Because if you stay on that first curve, you can be very profitable to the sudden disastrous end. And Mm -hmm. that's not the way you want it to happen. You want to be developing that second curve activity and know when to transition over and jump onto that curve and ride it to new heights. Be aware that the first curve is um, wonderful, it's also uh, dangerous, and you need to keep an eye on that second curve, recognize that it needs to be there and know
1: when to make the transition. You know, uh, not only, I think that in our practice management systems, that we've oftentimes become very ingrained in the metrics that we use to assess our operations. And as you just described with this S-curve about understanding how new payment methods will require new metrics for measurement, I think we should look at some of the metrics that we've traditionally used. In your session, you described the concept of total patient panel. Patient panel typically was in the past has always been associated with a particular payer. For example, if you talk to an organization and says, you know, and you say, "What's your patient panel?" and the typical response is, "Well, we have five percent of Medicaid. We're twenty-two percent Medicare. We've got our major insurers, our Blue Cross Blue Shield, and they and Blue Shield is covering forty percent, and our secondary payers are United Healthcare." Or Humana or some of the other local payer, but this does not necessarily give us the information that we want to have when we start looking at different types of, of payment methodology. Can you describe for our listeners and practice leaders how they need to rethink analyzing payer mix, but not from a payer perspective but by the type of contract that you have?
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, just a, a little historical review. One of the first important concepts that was uh, that was adopted by medical practices was the idea of case mix, and and the power of that idea was that you know you really kind of need to know what kind of cases do we do we see, what kind of services do we provide to treat people who are represented by those cases what kinds of equipment do we need to have? How do we do that in an efficient way? In other words, by looking at case mix, you could decide what you needed, when you needed it, where you needed it to provide the services that were required. And uh, that was a very important concept. And then later, the new concept was payer mix. And as you said, Dave, that that was uh, that was very very important because you know you, you really needed to know how those cases generated revenue, who was paying for those cases, and you know, were you what proportion of your your revenue stream was coming from CMS, you know, entities like uh, Medicare and Medicaid? What came from uh, the blues and other commercial payers? What was private pay uh, or some other arrangement? It was very, very helpful, very useful because it helped guide your business decisions, both on a strategic level and a tactical level. So what we're we're basically proposing now is a new kind of concept, which is gonna be important to help us get through the transition from fee-for-service to value, and that is reimbursement mix. And uh, let's kind of go through that process a, a bit. Today, in your service area, You have certain payers, and each payer has their own uh, mix of uh, contracts that you can engage in, and each contract can be, some can be traditional fee-for-service, more or less only, but they can also be any of the other modalities that I I mentioned earlier, uh, all the way up to full capitation, uh, full risk capitation. And so the payers now don't just give one product, they have multiple products depending on your service area. So the idea with reimbursement mix is not to be so really payer-centric, but reimbursement model-centric. So what you really need to do to manage the transition is to look at your full patient model and divide your patients into subpanels by reimbursement method, the reimbursement model. You may have patients in uh, reimbursement panels which represent multiple payers, but technically you're dealing with them in the same way or almost the same way. So it becomes a very powerful way of looking at really how you have to structure your costs and manage your revenue stream in a way that that is most appropriate. If you do that, if you create the reimbursement mix in your full patient panel, you're going to find out how many of of your patients fall into what you could call a value-based reimbursement panel, and which fall into a primarily uh, fee-for-service panel. And the idea, therefore, is by doing that, you can then think through exactly how you can structure your business as far as the services provided, the service expectations, the kind of, of services you have to provide to people in each of the reimbursement panels. Let me give you an example of that, and I'll, I'll go to both uh, both extremes. If, uh, if you're dealing with fee for serv- uh, the fee-for-service uh, reimbursement panel, those patients' primary approach is higher volume. They, uh, those folks may actually be picking those plans or because they prefer to have uh, frequent face-to-face encounters with their, with their providers. And the point is that is when you structure your practice, you're structuring in a certain way to efficiently provide high volume face-to-face encounters to your patients. As you move to the other extreme, you're, you're starting to re- you are gonna have to restructure the way you provide care and the way you handle patients because. In the more value-based care structure, you're going to be looking more like a patient-centered medical home or primary care medical home, whichever you prefer to call it. The point is there, you're dealing with multiple disciplines. You're dealing with team care. You're dealing with high interactivity across multiple kinds of encounters. We'll talk about those in a minute. It's a very different structure. You're dealing with population health management. You're dealing with care registries, care management. It's a different environment, and uh, it involves uh, different costs. And scaling those those various special resources has a, a lot to do with your cost model and how you better be getting reimbursed properly. As you're moving from one extreme to the other, you have to be very careful about that cost model and the way you're structuring your practice. And you need to know the sizes and the people in the panels uh, in these various reimbursement
1: panels. So you, you need to know your reimbursement mix. You know, Randy, you mentioned the encounter, which is another one of the traditional measures that practices uh, have used for years to assess volume of, of work. And traditional fee-for-service environment, a patient encounter is easily defined it's a face to face meeting uh, now perhaps not only necessarily face to face but by telephone or video between a provider and a patient where a clinically significant interaction occurs and which is usually paid for by the patient the insurer or you know or the government payer but in value based payment you know how should practice leaders change in how they measure and interpret patient encounters. You identified some different types of encounters earlier that obviously consume resources, but may not lead to direct payment or from an insurer.
0: That's right. And, and that's an important part of surviving and prospering during the transition, because in a more profoundly value-based care environment, you're going to have all kinds of different kinds of encounters. In addition to -to face-to-face encounters, you're going to have encounters which are based on phone calls. That could be a patient calling a provider. It could be a provider calling a patient. There could be phone calls to patients by nurses or care managers. There are email exchanges uh, between patients and the care team text message reminders to patients not only about you know an upcoming appointment but also about their need for to come in to to do a lab or to meet some other uh quality uh requirement some sort of diagnostic thing like uh pap smear or or something uh, or, or diagnostic imaging like mammography and telemedicine visits another kind of encounter home visits. Um, You could go on and on as far as the richness of the kinds of encounters that could and will, I think, increasingly be the norm in medical practice. But I I would just want to point out that all that being true, the face-to-face encounter remains very important. And to understand the transition, I think, and and to simplify things a bit, it's important to understand that face-to-face encounters are not going away and especially with the uh, demographic changes in the country and the fact that we are increasingly becoming more and more of an internal medicine, uh, geriatric type environment. Folks, uh, especially uh, elderly folks, really like that face-to-face personal contact with their provider and and the care team. So the face-to-face encounter is still a very useful way of grappling with the, the transition. The, the, the main thing, and I think responding, Dave, to part of your question is, in fee-for-service, you are primarily being paid for face-to-face encounters. Even during COVID, telemedicine visits, there have been a lot of, I'm sure a lot of the listeners know that you know we all did telemedicine visits, but uh, being reimbursed for them was, was a problem. And some of that reimbursement relaxation Uh, is going to go away. So, um, you know, even those kinds of encounters uh, may become a little more challenging to to use. When you get over to value-based care, you're not really necessarily being paid for each one of those types of, of encounters individually. What's happening is you're being paid for on a per member per month basis or a per member per year basis. And uh, you just, as it goes back to the, the, the bag of gold, you know, you have this, this amount of money that you have and your cost model and the services and the volume of those services, the scaling of those services has to fit the overall amount of capitated funding you're receiving. And uh, if that gets out of balance, you're in trouble. And for your population, based on risk stratification and so forth, how is that mix best delivered
1: to create quality care? You know Randy, you described the issue of margin and how practices can understand their profitability. Also, you've described how margin shifts when you move from fee-for-service environment to a capitation or bundling environment. Uh, can you give us a little bit more insight into how a practice calculates its margin? And its implications as we move from a volume-based payment system to one that rewards value as much as volume.
0: Sure. I think the important thing at this point, you know, we're kind of building on concepts here as we go through our discussion. And we just were talking about reimbursement mix. And I think the next piece to simplify some of this so that so that we can kind of use it uh, as in our in our toolbox is to see our patient panel as, and sort of resolving it down to two major reimbursement panels. One is all of the patients who are mostly or profoundly fee-for-service, and then the other panel, the other patient panel, the rest of your uh, of your uh, full patient panel, would be, on, on some level, value-based in its reimbursement structure. So, Starting from that concept, you can can see at any moment in time for, let's start with the the fee-for-service panel, panel number one. In in that panel, at any moment in time, if you take all of the costs, conceptually, which are required to deliver an encounter to a member of that fee-for-service panel, and you divide by the total number of patients in that panel, you're going to get the total expense or cost per encounter to deliver that service to a patient on average. And then if you do the same thing with the total dollars that are collected in that panel for delivering an encounter, and you you simply subtract the average cost per encounter from the average collected revenue per encounter, you're going to get a net. Then that number represents the margin per encounter. Now, in this discussion, we're only assuming uh, positive uh, margins, but it's important to know what that number is in each of in each panel, each reimbursement panel. What is that margin? Now, in reality, it could be positive or negative. If it's negative, you know clearly that's a concern. That's something to work on. But you know, it can be positive or break even. It can be very positive in some cases, that's of course what you're trying to get to. So you can do that for your fee for service panel. You can also do this for your value panel. Again, how much money through capitation, pay for performance, shared savings, all kinds of things. uh, How much money are you getting total for all of the encounters? And we're gonna stick to -to face-to-face encounters here, just for simplicity's sake what's the average cost to provide those encounters to that population and then what's the total amount collected to provide because you provided services to those folks and then divide by the total number of encounters and it, and once again you will get the total margin that hopefully that margin again is positive could be negative could be a break even in other words the margin could be zero so To understand at any point in time what your total margin is, you would add together for a point in time the total contribution, the total margin from all your free-for-service patient activity, and the total margin generated by all of your value-based care activity. And the way you do that is what's my margin times the total volume, the total encounters at that instant in time. So uh, you can do that for both the uh, fee-for-service side and you can do that for the value side. You add those together and that creates a top line. And that top line is the top line of our X-bar analysis. So at any point in time, you can see as a factor of both the margin, average margin and the number of encounters, what your, your contribution is from that panel. And so at all times, the, uh, the total margin will be that instantaneous contribution from each of those panels, and you can watch it change graphically over time, and uh,
1: that's really the key to understanding what we're going to be talking about next. In fact, you mentioned this X-bar analysis, and it has been oftentimes described as that balancing act between understanding where your highest levels of profitability rise as the environment shifts around an organization and the concept of total margin in this combined payment system really says that a practice leader has to balance their fee-for-service margin with the amount of, you know, which is based essentially on just pure volume. Whereas in a mixed fee-for-service and at-risk payment environment, that they have to look much more at not only the fee-for-service volume, but also there's costs and the revenues associated with their value-based payments. So can you give a brief description of this X-bar analysis and how that? what does that mean for an organization?
0: So now let's talk about the, uh, the actual X-bar analysis, which is a graphical approach. And let me, let me suggest that if you have a piece of paper near you, to take it out, take out a pencil or a pen, and draw an X on the paper. Over the X, draw a straight line. That—that's the principal graphical representation of what where, where we're going with all this discussion. If you take the uh, the leg of the X, which starts in the upper left and ends at the at the lower right, that's your fee for service panel. That represents the volume, the uh, margin contribution from your fee for service panel. If you take the other leg of the X, which starts at the bottom left and ends at the bottom right, that's your growing value-based panel. And if you look at the line at the top, that's your total margin. Every point, as you look at the X, there are, if you draw a straight vertical line, you'll find that there's a contribution of margin from the declining fee-for-service leg And there's at that point in time, a contribution margin from the the increasing value-based leg. The idea is that where those two legs cross, that intersection is where roughly half of your patients are in one uh, panel and half are in the other panel. As the fee-for-service leg drops, you'll notice that the value-based leg is, is increasing. Why is that? Because ideally, those patients from one of the panels are moving into the other panel. Now, the point there is, you know, you've got to make sure that you've got a place for those patients to land in your practice, and that's contracting. If you don't have relationships, if you're not participating in the value-based plans in your region, where are your patients going to go as, as their employer moves them around, for example? Um, they're probably going to find another practice. So part of the, the answer of survival here is make sure you're well stocked on the value based side contractually. The other issue which, which determines how you're going to get through this transition, if you take your piece of paper and you draw kind of a half circle from one top of the leg and the X to the other top of the leg and the X, imagine that total margin curve. This'll just give be an example. So let's say that during the transition over time and times occurring from left to right on the X axis, your actual contracting on the fee-for-service side is growing nicely. You know, you're getting more money. But on the value-based side, even though there's a one-to-one transfer of patients to the value side from your fee-for-service side, that side is staying static as far as what you're receiving. What you're going to see is a rise in your total margin because that's going to overcome the losses to the value-based side until the X, the intersection point of the X. At that point, it starts heading down. Your total margin will start heading down because those high reimbursement patients are continuing to move into your value side. So by the time you get to the top of, of the other leg of the X, the value-based side, you're back to where you started. That's just an example. Um, so early on, you're going to be really looking really great to, to the board and the, the, the president of the, of the group. But during the second half of that transition, they're going to be asking a question. Hey, we were really doing a lot better, but suddenly we're not doing so well and we're continuing to go down. So what's going on? That's why it's so important to understand the elements of the model and what's deciding where you end up. Are you ending up at the same place at the end of the transition or are you ending lower as far as total margin? Are you ending higher in the total margin? Well, the question becomes, where's the volume going? Is the volume on the fee for service side, or is it on the value side? And how much are you netting? What's the average margin for every one of those encounters on either side of, of the graph? Uh, on the either side, you know, one panel versus another. It is a game of numbers, and those numbers matter. and uh, And I would suggest you need to be graphic so that you can see what's happening. Uh, so because there's nothing like being able to visualize the transition to understand how you're doing. And a lot of it isn't just, as Dave said, how rich or profitable your your contracts would appear to be. It also is, are you managing the structure, the cost model of your practice as it moves from fee-for-service to value? Because I think we all know that the cost of a pure fee-for-service, old-fashioned, so to speak, practice is very different than the cost model and the richness of services and disciplines involved in a full-blown PCMH
1: team. You no, know, Randy. Very interesting as you talked about that. It brings to mind uh, a information that is actually published by MGMA in our various surveys. That for MGMA we've conducted surveys that examined revenues and expenses in practice for well over fifty years, and 10 years ago, I wrote a column, the data mine that published in the MGMA Connection, that examined what happens for organizations who had capitation in the late 1990s. Now, this was the perhaps the peak of capitation in, among medical practices, and in 1996, over 60, almost 70%, 68.3% of multi-specialty groups reported having capitation contracts. And uh, not only did multi-specialty groups have contracts, but also cardiology practices, 31% of those practices reported having global payment or capitation contracts, and 39% of orthopedic surgery practices. So capitation was prevalent throughout the payment system. Well, I looked at what happened to those multi-specialty groups for their financial performance, And we saw the actual uh, example of the X curve you described that the practices who had no capitation had excellent financial performance, financial performance of practices who were over 50% capitated. Okay. Their performance was was actually as good as the practices who had no capitation at all, 100% fee for service. However, those practices who had both fee-for-service and capitation in various percentages saw worse, worse financial performance. And in fact, the practices who had the least financial performance were those who had 11% to 50% capitation. Exactly what you described, where you had sufficient amount of value-based payment to require the practice to invest in new information systems and new staffing models and changing how they're doing business, but not having enough revenue from those activities to actually make up the difference. Uh, Randy, can you give us some of your thoughts on what we actually saw in the real data? And I understand that our listeners can actually pull up this article and they can actually look at at the numbers themselves.
0: Yes, you know, that article, that, uh, that column that you wrote in 2000, 2011 really sort of presaged a lot of what we're discussing today. It is exactly the same phenomenon. You and I have kind of discussed this as, you know, that center area, which is sort of the valley of woe, because in that area, if you are not managing properly, you could suffer major losses and you could actually lose your business. Um, that's the riding the first curve and uh, leaving too late. You have to be managing the full way or you'll find yourself in that middle ground uh, near you know, either side of the intersection point of the X in the graph. And that's a very dangerous place because you've, you've probably heard this said before, but you have a, a foot in two canoes. I, I'm thinking in my past of uh, being uh, in charge of a, a large practice where it was profoundly, you know, managed care and capitated. And in that situation, you know, the, one of the typical parts of that model is to have a whole staff of triage nurses. And what that did was it, uh, it, it made the face-to-face visits a little, somewhat less frequent but, but more, more suitable to the real need and let, much of the care of the patients actually was handled by the triage nurses. Later on, that same medical group uh, lost a lot of its capitated business because of, I think, primarily contract failures. And they ended up with you know, their fee-for-service panel growing suddenly very large proportionally. But they were set up for uh, value-based care, weren't they? <laughs> so guess what? I had to lay off a, a bunch of triage nurses because we didn't need uh, volume blocking; we needed volume <laughs> to survive. So, you know, I make that that. And by by the way, both models I think provided excellent quality of care. So it, it really wasn't um, you know one model was better than the other as far as the the care of the patients. It was you had to be aware of what was which panel uh, you know was was more prevalent in your full patient panel which reimbursement panel was more dominant otherwise you were going to run into serious financial trouble you
1: know Randy there's so much we could talk about <laughs> but i know you've got a busy schedule and i know our, your time is limited is there anything else you would like to add you know we came through covid
0: and there's a sense that the brakes were put on the transition to value based uh, care and reimbursement. And I think it's important that we all keep in mind that this is, go- this is restarting. And I think the Cures Act is, is an example of that. And we are going to continue to move toward value-based uh, care and reimbursement. So please, uh, if you are on that fee-for-service first line of Ian Morrison's uh, conceptual curve, be careful not to, to stay there too long be looking, uh, be be very cognizant of what's going on in in the market uh, for the patients you serve. Are the plans providing more capitated or managed care types of products? And are you ready for that? And do you understand what you need to do to, to move your staff to a different kind of structure in a way that scales properly so you don't find yourself in that, that dead zone that uh, Dave wrote about uh, back in the 2011. You want to stay out of that
1: dead zone. Randy, thank you so much. I know our listeners will find our discussion most interesting.